Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. In this episode, David Scullion discusses the Afghanistan withdrawal, the trilateral agreement between the US, UK and Australia, and the special relationship with Patrick Porter, Professor of International Security at Birmingham University, and Sebastian Milbank, PhD candidate in the Cambridge Faculty of Divinity and a journalist based at The Tablet. Hello and welcome to The Critic Podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Patrick Porter, who is Professor of International Security at Birmingham and a Senior Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute in London. I'm also joined by Sebastian Milbank, who's a PhD candidate in the Cambridge Faculty of Divinity and a journalist based at The Tablet. Hello to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, you have both written interesting articles uh, for The Critic recently. Patrick, you have made the argument uh, that Joe Biden was right to leave Afghanistan, uh, that leaving wasn't a betrayal to the country and that it was his Machiavellian moment. And you write... Uh, Biden may not be an artful manipulator or far-sighted statesman, but amidst failure, he had one Machiavellian moment as the crisis spiralled. He recognised the nature of the problem and remorselessly got it done. Uh, can you just unpack that a little bit, please? I can. Uh, put it simply, Biden realised what some of his critics don't, which was the nature of the choice. And the nature of the choice was a very hard one, which was to either leave Afghanistan or to stay and escalate. This is important because a number of his critics argue either implicitly or explicitly that the, the US could have actually stayed and preserved a kind of cheap stalemate and things and muddled through and things somehow would have got better later on. And they call for strategic patience, although it's not entirely clear what they should have been patient for. Biden recognised um, that, in fact, the only way to go was to go. And the only way to go was to set an arbitrary deadline and stick to it and leave. And now, it turns out that the execution of this withdrawal, as credible sources show, has been pretty bad, uh, avoidably bad, and some people died who didn't need to die, and various other terrible things happened. But in this reality, in the brutal, unfair world of politics, Biden uh, uh, gritted his teeth and hung tight and made a very unsentimental, in some ways quite offensive case for leaving, uh, not acknowledging his own faults because that's the only thing that would, that is possible in the realities of politics. Sebastian, your article focuses on uh, the special relationship, and you basically say it's, a, it's, a, it's an abusive one, it's fair to say. Yeah, you write in your piece, we've all seen it in somebody, we know a friend or an acquaintance, they've got this partner who doesn't consider their feelings, bosses them around, tries to control their life, engages in bouts of irrational jealousy, won't let them see friends and relatives. They'll even complain about them sometimes at length sometimes sobbing down the phone line, but they won't leave them. And if they do, they always go running back the next day. Why? Because the abusive partner makes them feel like they can't live without them, employing charm and threats to undermine their capacity to be a fully independent person. Uh, you then go on to, to liken this to the, the anger that Joe Biden is said to have expressed when his um, Afghanistan withdrawal was criticised by uh, British cabinet ministers. Uh, and you go, you go on to say, quite interestingly, I thought, uh, why do presidents still react like this today? Because improbable as it may seem, America still sees us as a threat, not a threat like China, of course, but the strategic logic that dictated Britain's earlier castration remains the same. Britain, like America, is a global financial centre 
serves as a finishing school to the world's elites, has a blue water navy, a seat on the Security Council, nuclear weapons, and strong relations with the rest of the Anglophone world. Now and again, such as when Britain's leaders condemn the Afghan withdrawal, America sees the uneasy doppelganger of another power patrolling the sea lanes, bearing the torch of parliamentary democracy and English-speaking civilization. Sebastian, is your argument essentially a, a polished version of Hugh Grant's speech to the president in Love Actually? <laughs> oh, God, now there's an example. Oh, my word. Um, not, no, I mean, not really, because, I mean, I think, um, I mean, the speech in Love I mean, okay, so I think definitely at the time, um, you know, this is, you know, war on terror is still in its heyday when that film came out. And I think there was a sort of a fantasy element of people wanting to see a British Prime Minister stand up for US president. They, I think it was far too much like, aren't the Americans sort of terrible and crude and aren't we sort of much more civilised because we sit at home? And I, and I don't think that's really, and I think that sort of very cheap anti-Americanism isn't really, it's just the other side of the special relationship. It's sort of feeling kind of complacently smug in relation to America, but yeah, it's not exactly. really about challenging America. It's not really about trying to present an alternative vision or make, you know, or 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 see something new. Uh, I don't think it's quite that. Um, there was some interesting polling that came out recently that suggested that Americans think there's a that that uh, there is a special relationship more than the British seem to think one exists. Does that surprise you? Uh, well, no, I mean, actually, no. And I, and I think that, 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 that I think I'd like to make there's something, you know, you don't always have a room for um, the subtleties in, in articles. The second thing is, I, I'm, when I talk about America, I mean, the American state, and specifically America's foreign policy apparatus, you know, the, the military industrial complex, the State Department, you know, but the actual, you know, ordinary American people really do have a special relationship with Britain you know, of, of a real kind in the, you know, their fellow English speakers, there's a huge amount of cultural and historical commonalities there. You know, I mean, I think about, you know, stories of, you know, Americans during the two world wars, you know, some of them would start, you know, wanting to go and fight on behalf of Britain, wanting to help, you know, there really is a, an actual Anglosphere commonality. It's just that that's not how anyone in the American foreign policy from policy establishment things, unfortunately. Um, you know, Patrick, you, get some, you get some sentimentalism, but that's not the same thing. Patrick, do you share Sebastian's view of the special relationship that it's, uh, that politically at least, it seems to be abusive? I very much agree, except that uh, it's in the nature of the thing that the United States um, relationship with Britain cannot be friendly because states cannot be friends. This is the great sentimental conceit at the heart of the idea of the special relationship, that Britain, by sort of being closely aligned with the United States, can somehow win extraordinary influence and help steer the steer the colossus, Greece steering Rome. Now, I absolutely agree that there is this mistake about it. And I, I like to think of this in terms of day and night. By night, in the evening, with their tuxedos and their brandies, uh, American security elites can be very sentimental indeed. Mm. About, about Britain, about the historic ties, about Churchill and Roosevelt, about the Atlantic Charter, we've seen it all. Um, but by day, in that cold, brutal light of the Oval Office, America does what most superpowers have always done, which is it does what it likes, and it and it doesn't particularly care. And and to the extent that it does worry about Britain and other European powers, it wants them to remain good, friendly subordinates under an American system so that it can serve its own interests. And 
it's it's in a, in a sense the engine of special relationship ambitions um certainly over here is a desire to wish this away Sebastian sees Britain as a, a global player and, and, and suggests that America is threatened by Britain. Is that something you, uh, I mean, that surprised me when in the article, is that something you that's something you share? Uh, broadly, yes. I mean, let, let me try and measure this. I think Britain is a major power. I'm not sure it's a world power, but perhaps there's a slipperiness in these terms. Hmm. Uh, I think that if you, on, on any reasonable measure, the size of the economy, population, technological and scientific cutting edge, as, as Sebastian says, uh, blue water navy, a bit overstretched these days. Uh, Britain is a serious, a serious player in the system. Uh, and it should always be concerned about the scope and the purpose of that power. I don't think it's a global straddling colossus, but I, neither do I think it's just this backwater on the far edges of Europe, as, as some, some hardcore remainders seem to imply. Um, in fact, that the reason people worry about Britain and leaving Britain leaving the European Union is that it is a consequential power. That one of the reasons it matters that Britain's leaving the European Union is that it does matter. <laughs> it, it does count in the system. Uh, the difficulty is that these things are relative. That whether Britain is global or or major or not, you're talking about a superpower with an unusual level of preponderance in the system. Not nothing like what it used to have 20 years ago, but still far ahead of most uh, of its Europe, Britain and European counterparts and Asian counterparts. And so uh, it's therefore difficult for Britain to get what it wants, because as someone once said, you either run an empire or you're part of one. Now, Britain is a major player, but within an Amer as a satellite state within an American system, and that, that is inherently constraining. And what did you make of Britain's... Uh kind of uh, criticism of, of Biden during the Afghanistan withdrawal. I know you mentioned um, Rory yeah. Stewart in your piece about how he yeah. uh, he was a, 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 a critic of uh, Britain's role in Afghanistan until the until we finally left. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it was was uh, wish born of wishful thinking and and sloppy analysis. The fact is Britain left essentially with most of its troops years ago. It recognised this was a losing proposition and, and wanted to limit its liability. Most other allies did the same thing. Uh, America was the one doing the heavy lifting in conjunction with Afghan allies and security forces right until the end. Um, secondly, I think that the notion that America didn't consult and unilaterally just cut and run is just simply historically false. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that America gave notice publicly and privately that it was, in fact, going to do what it said it would do, what it committed to do, what it formally agreed to do, which was to leave. Um, there was up until even on, for example, the 14th of April of this year, there was an extensive briefing from Secretary of State and the uh, Secretary, Secretary for Defence to NATO allies saying that we're in fact going to leave. I think one of the problems is that there was a wishful idea that America somehow would, despite all this, stick around. And when that calculation turned out to be false, uh, a very... Uh, the, the great attract, the great temptation was to play a blame game, to blame America for wrong-footing Britain when Britain had been caught short, like others, by making the wrong assumptions. Now we know this because one power didn't make the same assumptions and quietly started evacuating very efficiently. And that was France, had access to the same intelligence, but it wasn't nearly as sentimentally bound to the idea that America could sort of hang around and, and mine the store. Now the other part of the problem is, is is the argument, the implicit argument about what the choice was. Rory Stewart and some others like Tom Tugendhat, uh, I think, complacently assume that had America stayed, because you always have to have to do the counterfactual, had America stayed, it could have at low cost uh, held the ring for an indefinite period until somehow things got better. 
But this is this in fact is based on a delusion that tell the Taliban's relative restraint during this time, at least when it came to US forces, was based upon the precise conditions of the Doha agreement negotiated in February 2020, um, which by, by of necessity would have been violated had America stayed. Therefore, the Taliban would have been off the leash and it would have been looked a lot like it looked before, where America was taking a large number of non-fatal casualties and, in, and participating in ever-escalating airstrikes. So I'm just simply not impressed by the British Warhawks' performance over this. Now, there are some who are much more honest about it, who say, look, um, actually, we would have had to stay and had a fight, and the fight would have been worth it. And that's an argument I'm willing to have. But the idea that there was an easy alternative, or in Rory Stewart's uh, risible terms, one of the, easy, the easiest thing to continue to do, I can, we shouldn't even take that seriously. It's not a serious critique. I think the criticism is valid that partly the issue is that America constantly undermined its position by uh, saying that it was about to withdraw constantly, but always kind of hanging on. Uh, no, because uh, part of the problem in which the US and its allies had got itself into was that it was trying to actually not so much just defeat the Taliban, but to get its client state, its ally in Kabul, to start governing more responsibly, to start governing less corruptly, to start governing in a way that could persuade Afghans to fight for it. And the only one of the only forms of coercion it had at its disposal was a credible threat to leave. Had the US done done a different thing, and that is said it would stay for as long as it took, then that would re relieve this Afghan state of any kind of disciplinary pressure to change its behaviour. This is the problem with these things. Uh, you go into the country and your interests are not aligned with the interests of those of your clients and your allies who you're trying to support. And it is their behaviour and their separate interests which ultimately undermine the whole thing. Recently, we've seen in the news the deal struck between uh, Australia, the UK and the US with regard to nuclear submarines. The, the French, who you, you've briefly mentioned, Patrick, uh, are very cross that Australia cancelled a big uh, diesel-powered submarine contract. Uh, I wonder what you both make of that, because our editorial this month uh, basically argues, uh, you know, what, what's the point in Britain getting involved when uh, when standing up to China is... Uh, it seems like what this is about is a war the US just has to fight as the global superpower. So what's the what's the point of Britain uh, uh, engaging in a very small way uh, with this deal? Uh, Sebastian, perhaps uh, you could share your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, okay, so this is actually a very very complicated story because there's just so many different factors involved. But um, and I say that the basic fact, you know, the, despite my huge skepticism about America. Um, there's no question about who you'd rather um, be in charge, the Chinese or the American. So, and, and, and I mean, this idea that, again, it's this, this sort of rubber odd idea that Britain, if we're to isolate itself, you know, we're, we're you know, we're, you know, when we're, you know, a part of the kind of global financial market, when we're, um, you know, in this newly globalizing world, I mean, it, it, it's just not realistic to think that the expansion of Chinese dominance is something that would leave us untouched any more than the expansion of American dominance left us untouched. Um, and it's it's tremendously in our interest to try and stay in the room when these decisions are made um, and to try and deepen our relationship with countries like Australia, with which we have a great deal in common. Um, so it's very much in our interests, I think. Patrick, what's your, uh, what's your thoughts on the Aussie? UK, I don't know how to pronounce what they, they the weird acronym they've come up the with. Arcus Ruckus, the Orcus Ruckus. <laughs> uh, I, I'm cautiously 
sympathetic with it. I mean, let, let's let's I want, let me tell you where I come at this from as an Australian as well as a Brit. So I've got both passports. Uh, I'm in favour of an Australian latent nuclear program, as in developing the latent ability to to develop nuclear weapons at, at short notice. So um, this whole debate about acquiring nuclear powered submarines, in a sense, for me, doesn't go far enough in terms of developing seriously independent capability in the long term. <laughs> right. So um, to me, it's not a hardcore position to take to say Australia should acquire nuclear propulsion technology in the way that some are regarding it as some great, terrible proliferation risk. I'm in favour of Australia, in fact, taking more proliferation risks, given the danger of the environment and given the possibility that one day, despite our best efforts, the US and Australia will diverge. And countries like Australia have yeah. to prepare for the evil hour when they might might find themselves alone. Uh, having said that, I think it's better to have the long range nuclear propulsion and loitering ability that this technology provides. But it isn't just about technology, as Sebastian sort of said, it's also an attempt for, by Australia to kind of tie in uh, the US and to a lesser extent the UK into longer term alliance partnership to, to ensure that it doesn't remain alone. In that sense, it's a bit of a gamble, it comes at the price of uh, French alienation. Now, Australia ha does have a direct interest in containing China's, what I would see as China's aggressive bid for hegemony in the region. We've only just learned that Chinese envoys, uh, Beijing's envoys, even said to Australia that in order for Australia to have a friendly relationship with Beijing, it would have to censor and silence any criticism or unfriendly criticism of, of China out of its own private media. So Australia's whole political liberty is at stake here. And it does have a direct interest in blunting China's ability to dominate the region. I think Britain also, as Sebastian says, has an interest in checking China's bid for domination. I don't think it's it's quite as invested in the military picture in Asia, but it does have some interest in helping create bulwarks, as it were, in Asia. And this is one step towards that. I think the main debate for Britain, though, has has got to be what can it do in its own wider region to uh, to keep to keep the peace and to protect it in the in the possibility that the US one day will draw down or at least burden shift to focus on Asia. Right. So yeah. countries like Britain and France have a very strong interest in looking at, for example, things like infrastructure ownership in Europe and checking China's other means for coercion, as well as uh, developing their own uh, capability to, to defend the region from whatever's coming next. Uh, so I'm, I'd kind of give this whole thing two cheers. Uh, but for countries like Australia, they have to think beyond how do we get our allies for, for more firmly embedded. They, ha they have to think about the dystopian possibility that one day they might not have allies. Yeah, and I mean, this is why I think putting France out is a, is a, is a considerable mistake. I agree that having nuclear right. propulsion is superior um, strategically damning diesel. In fact, it's slightly crazy they didn't do that in the first place. And now that's enough, but I have seen some people suggest the French might have been able to be nuclear power marines if they've been contracted to do so. Um, but the, the, the biggest mistake here is that exactly what you say is like if, if America choose to go down the red light station, it could pivot away, it could draw down its forces. And, yeah. and you want as many ally, potential allies in the picture as possible. And the idea that you, you know, offend the French to this degree, I hope that they find a way to um, walk, walk this back in some, some degree and bring the French in at some level. Otherwise, they're really doing themselves damage for no reason. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, we, we don't yet know the full story, and it is a complex picture, as you say, of moving parts. My general sense is that Australia probably committed the offence of doing some unnecessary level of deception, that there needed to be some deception here. This is a ruthless world, but you want to avoid excess self-harm. And Australia probably could have managed this uh, with a little more guile, 
uh, and being a little more upfront. And if you're going to stab someone, as someone said, better to stab them in the stomach than in the back. But the other the other difficulty here is that it, my fear is, I mean, one of the things your article very well raises is the fear of America just suddenly going home. I don't think America in Asia is going to go home. I think it has a very strong interest. My worry is more the other side of it, that allies like Australia and Britain, they do fear abandonment, but they also fear entrapment. They fear yeah. being, being tied in inadvertently into wars by stronger allies that they don't want to be part of. And Australia could find itself with that, for example, over Taiwan. And my, the sort of the, the fear I sketch out in my article in the Australian Financial Review a little while ago is that there could be such, such a, a crisis, a confrontation across the Taiwan Strait in which Australia, in fact, opts out and finds itself suddenly alone, even though America is still very busy in the region. <laughs> so the whole thing is, is, is very fraught. It's, it's not just that America might not be there one day. It's that America might be there, but might suddenly be disaffected with us for not doing all the things that expected. And one of the problems is that when you get more and more embedded with a country like America with military technology, that does sort of create an expectation, a heightened expectation of being along for the whole ride. And countries like Australia and Britain have their own interests and they can't just commit for being in there yeah. for the whole ride because they've got to look after themselves. No, and I mean, I think it, it also, I think it does create quite an interest international order if you have, you know, huge coalition or block in which a lot of large groups, smaller and medium-sized powers are just locked into the interests of a couple of military hegemons because yeah. there's very few limiting factors or the escalation factors in a conflict where you can simply say, well, we're going to withdraw all of your defensive capabilities if you don't commit to an offensive campaign. And that becomes a huge problem. Yeah, yeah that, absolutely. That what you want is a multilateralism in which, you know, in which, you know, the diverging interests can actually mod, you know, moderate the kind, of, you know, instead of heightening the contradiction thing, as you want to, you want to have some degree of, I don't know, the word for beta of adding or something, you know. Yeah, I mean, trying to influence their behaviour, but also preparing for the reality that you, especially if you're Australia, a middle power, you might not be able to influence their behaviour. And this is where the, we run into problems with sentimentalised notions of the Anglosphere, where we think about well, the world in terms of friendship and common ties of language and culture and history. But when it actually comes down to it, when you actually get down to it, these are still separate countries that have different interests with varying intensity. And where some see an urgent stake in a problem, others will see that it's second or third order and don't want to get into World War III over it. And I do uh, feel that this is kind of the part of your argument where I do feel like I, I'd want to push back. The right. idea that states can never be friends. I mean, I agree right. that in, in the modern, in much of the modern world order, that is not the case because of how people conduct themselves and how they think and how policy establishments work. But I, I'm not at all convinced that acting, you know, that, act, that completely sort of trying to kind of turn every aspect from policy in every country in this kind of game theoretic model. Well, it, it, especially that it's morally good, but also I don't think it's practically good, even from even from the perspective of kind of hegemonic empire building. That in fact it's genuine, you know, that in fact states can have honor and prestige, and they can have, um, and they can, you know, they have reputation. And the, and the way that America has treated allies as if they were subjects, where that they haven't consulted, you know, lack lack consultation. Um, you know, making foreign policy decisions purely on the basis of what good that may. Um, it means that, no, that there's no, no one can rely on them. It means that America's currency internationally is completely in, hard, in terms of, you know, 
economic power, military power, which means at the moment that those things fail or fail to be able to be leveraged in that context, America suddenly has no leverage. Um, because it, and, and I, I'm just, I think that friendship really has played a role. You know, some, you know, the way that Canada acted in relation to Britain in World War II was not, I mean, I'm sorry, you can't read that in any other context than friendship. If Canada just looked at its own interests, it could have opted out of the whole thing. I mean, for economic ties, but they weren't that powerful. You know, okay, they didn't so, have to provide the level of economic aid or on the terms they did. America certainly gave us far worse terms. Okay, so there's a number of number of things. I'm fa fantastic. We're having an argument. This is good. Um, <laughs> so a number of things here. I, I think it's true that it's true that countries can feel friendly impulses to each other. What I would argue is, is when you turn up the heat, when you turn up the heat on that, when you introduce tension in the interest, what tends to win out? What tends to win out is the cold-blooded uh, rail politics. So Australia is a comparable thing like Canada with Britain, Australia and Britain in World War II. But Singapore raised the terrifying prospect of Australia having to choose between uh, doing what Churchill said, which was to defend the empire's interests, particularly in Egypt and North Africa and the Mediterranean, or to bring the troops home to defend um, to defend the local area, to defend Papua New Guinea, et cetera, from Imperial Japan. And this led to an enormous and very bitter dispute where not only was the language no longer about friendship, but the language became one of Winston Churchill denouncing Australia for being a bunch of criminals from low stock for not doing what they were supposed to do. <laughs> That's Churchill for you. One of the problems with the argument that America's unreliable behaviour and unilateral behaviour in places like Afghanistan destroys its credibility is well then Australia, but why is Australia then seeking to <laughs> tie itself ever closer in uh, with a, with a military technology uh, arms deal and uh, wanting to double down on the relationship? It's because it distinguishes its interests uh, and its 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 measurement of America's interest in in, a, in an important region from uh, America's lesser lesser order interests in a more landlocked remote region in Afghanistan. Australia was able to distinguish America's performance and and credibility in a remote third order uh, peripheral war and and its interest in a, in, a, in, a re, in a contested region of first order importance. In other words, allies don't necessarily think about the world in terms of uh, an undifferentiated credibility. They actually make these distinctions. Uh, well, I'm afraid that is all we have time for. Thank you so much for both coming on the Critic Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.